0: BirdNote presents. My husband and I moved into the little cabin in early June. It was hot, I remember, and I was washing dishes with the window open over the kitchen sink, looking out over the acres and acres of wide open sagebrush that surrounds our house in rural Washington state. It's dusk, and the dogs outside roaming around. And I hear this sound. Yes. And silly city slicker me thinks, "Gee, I didn't know this house came with an automatic sprinkler system. <eyelugh-tillosos> and then I almost dropped the plate and raced down onto the deck because Bernie, our labradoodle, who has only ever encountered squirrels, was under the deck messing with a large, very irate rattlesnake. So I screamed at him to come and got him inside. And then all that night, I just lay in bed, picturing the snake coiled against the foundation of the house, feet away from where I was sleeping. So I waited until the morning when the temperatures are cooler and snakes are less active. And I took some deep breaths and a big sip of coffee, and I gave myself a pep talk and grabbed a long two by four and crawled under the deck. The snake was about 10 feet away from me, still coiled against the foundation of the house, maybe just waking up for another day of labradoodle hunting. I slammed the 2x4 into it, mashing it against the side of the cement foundation, and it started writhing, and I'm just squealing and sweating with fear in that cramped, dark place under the deck with the snake. So I pinned it and I pushed it along the foundation of the house until we came out the other side of the deck, and the carpenter, Luke, takes a sharpened shovel and chops off its head. He told me after the fact we had to bury it right away, because snakes can bite even after they're dead. And I figured he was bullshitting this you know, newcomer city slicker. but. Look it up. It's true. So now there's a snakehead buried under the corner of the deck. I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is Grouse, a show about the most controversial bird in the West and what it's taught me about hope, compromise, and life in rural America. We will get to the sage-grouse, I promise. Over the next seven episodes, we will be going deep on this strange, wonderful bird. But first, I want to tell you a bit about how I got here. I've been covering the environment for public radio since I graduated from college. All I've ever wanted to do is tell stories about science and nature. I guess when I started out in this work, I operated from the belief that if people knew more about what we were doing to the planet... Then they'd change their behavior or elect better leaders to make better policy. So I threw myself into stories about climate change, melting glaciers, toxic algal blooms, dying orcas, drought, wildfire, salmon die-offs, coal mining, oil spills. The news on the environment beat is never, or at least very rarely, good. But I felt like I was doing some good in the world, and I was winning awards and climbing the NPR career ladder— I was living in Seattle at the time, and my husband Michael and I would get out for hikes on the weekends. So, I told myself things were fine. But the truth was, after I filed a story, if I heard myself on the radio while driving home, glaciers in the North Cascades have shrunk by 50% since 1900. I'd turn it off.
1: Oh boy, well, I'll tell you, Ashley, it's a lot worse than it was last
0: week. This is what we expected. Ashley Ahern has the story of this little frog and its shrinking habitat. I didn't want to hear the news I was reporting. It was just so depressing and hopeless. Snow glaciers means warmer rivers, and that's bad news for salmon. And NPR was requiring that stories be shorter and shorter, so that meant I'd only have about three and a half minutes to explain some super complex problem. No one has ever seen a die-off as big as the one taking place on the West Coast now. Maybe get a few different perspectives on it. One's arm is hanging on by a single, gnarled string of flesh. Tell people basically how screwed we are. The young orca appeared to have been dead for up to a week before she washed ashore. And then sign off. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Ahern in Seattle. It was a fight every day not to become numb. And then in 2016, everything changed. Trump was elected, and the day after the election, I went to cover the pipeline protests at Standing Rock in North Dakota. So I'm walking through, walking through camp. I can smell sage, like there's a lot of sage being burned around here. And you can hear fireworks and singing and cheering. Kind of joyful, just joy. It's so cold, and there are so many stars.
1: Hi. What about the flags honey bear I want to walk in the flags. You want to walk along the flags? They're singing. They are singing. Isn't that beautiful? They're yeah. praying. They're praying for the water and the earth.
0: It's really quiet in camp. There's been an amazing night of singing and drum circling and I'm curled up in two sleeping bags because it's really fucking cold here and my breath is still um, clouding in the tent. But I'm I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy to be hearing the voices of all the people that have come from all around the world to support um, the tribes that are fighting this pipeline. Have you ever spent years working on something or believing in a basic premise and then lost faith in that premise or found it to be untrue? That's what Standing Rock did for me. We're going to renegotiate some of the terms. And And I say this no matter where you are on the pipeline issue or environmental activism. I had built my career around the belief that good journalism helped the public and held the powerful accountable. And Standing Rock blew that premise apart. Trump took office, and the pipeline was approved.
1: We'll see if we can get that pipeline built. A lot of jobs, great construction jobs.
0: I started feeling unsettled. You know when you can feel a big life change coming even though you don't know exactly what it looks like yet? Almost like a thunderstorm rumbling on a distant horizon. I had started to question what I was doing with my life, and if I still believed in the basic premise of journalism and what it's supposed to accomplish for our society. My husband, Michael, tends to clam up when I try to record conversations with him. So I sneakily turned on my iPhone while we were driving through a snowstorm last winter. Sorry about the road noise. And he said I could share this with you. I asked him if he remembered that period of time when I was doubting everything.
1: It was right after Standing Rock because you were like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like there were all these beautiful, like wonderful people that came from all walks of life. Like we pulled out all of the stops and it just doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. It was like the Tower of Babel, like all these people from all walks of life just in this place believing in something and then to come home and just... I didn't even know what to do with that tape because it didn't amount to anything. The 2016 election brought another realization for me. Living in the liberal echo chamber that is Seattle, and working for a liberal news organization, I felt like I didn't know my own country. I didn't understand how Trump had won. For a journalist, there is nothing worse than feeling like you're in the dark or you're not getting the whole story. And that's how I felt after the election. I was covering the environment, so natural resources, wild things, salmon, livestock, logging, wildfire, but I was doing it from a city, for city listeners. I think I just had this feeling of hopelessness, that my journalism, or any journalism really, wasn't making a difference in this post-truth era we live in.
1: The sense of futility that came after after the election, Yeah. not only do people not want more bad news about environment stories, but like, the people that elected Trump don't even, they're in a completely different they're media ecosystem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like a double, you know, it's like the first one was like, you know a stab to the heart and the next one was like the nail in the coffin it's like okay ship you know ship that idea like bury that idea that like you know things will magically get better just through like more information reporting in the environment
0: yeah that was a hard realization though Over the years, Michael and I had spent a bunch of time hiking and camping in a little valley on the east side of Washington's Cascade Mountains, about four hours northeast of Seattle. It's called the Metow Valley, and all told, there are only about 5,000 people that live there, and the valley's only about 60 miles long. It's an interesting mix of people. Multi-generational ranchers and farmers go to the grocery store and town meetings with Amazon and Microsoft money from Seattle. And then you've got retirees and back-to-the-lander hippie types mixed in with chiseled young rock-climbers. There are salmon in the rivers and some wolves in the nearby mountains. And people get worked up about both. The Metau Valley is in Okanagan County, which is one of the most conservative, poorest, and largest counties by landmass in Washington state. So if I was looking for a place to get outside of that NPR filter bubble in the liberal Seattle echo chamber and try to understand what's going on in the other America this was a place to do it. So we made the jump. We packed up our things, I quit my job, and we left the city. I went from filing news stories on deadline to herding cows on horseback. Come on. Good girl. Good girl. Here we go, let's get those cows, Pistol. Let me get Pistol. So that's Pistol. She's my girl a little Arabian mare that I got a lady in the valley gave her to me for free when I started riding her and she could see that pistol and I clicked we're both kind of stubborn ornery um hustling ladies <laughs> that don't take uh, direction all the time and tend to have our own opinions about things so sometimes she moves cows for me when I ask her to Pistol and I are by ourselves in a little ravine, moving about 30 cows on a local ranch, with my friends Dave and DK and Amber off in the distance. We're just out for a day, bringing these guys down from one pasture into another one, and then we come to a creek. Pistol hates water. i not do it. Come on. Like, nope. really, does not want to cross nope. creeks. Come on, down we go. God damn it. Come on, Pistol. All right, this is me failing and getting off my damn horse because she won't cross a fucking creek. Come on. No self-respecting cowboy ever gets off his horse. Yeah. Every day, a new challenge that I'm ill-equipped for. (laughs) So I get back on after dragging Pistol on foot across the creek and meet up with Dave and DK and Amber as we push the Black Angus cows toward the corrals at the bottom of a steep ravine.
1: Down we get. Come on. Hey, cow.
0: Good mare. Good mare. Come on, sweet mare. This way. Good girl. <laughs> the four of us riders come together around the herd, like pulling yeah. the drawstring of a change yeah. purse tight, and the cows flow like a black mass into the corral. Can you hear Dave in the distance? Hollering on. Hip, 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 hip.
1: Yep. Funk out, funk out. Yep. Humpy, humpy. Let's go. Okay. You guys just to go. <laughs> Hup, hup. In you go, ladies!
0: Nobody saw me flailing to get pistol across the creek, so we'll just keep that little secret between us. The truth is, I screw up every time I move cows, but I love doing it and I'm learning every day. Some of the most interesting conversations I've had since moving to this part of the country have happened on horseback in wide open sagebrush. I get to spend time with people who maybe disagree with me politically, but we've become friends. Dave and DK are the first people I call now when my car gets stuck in the snow, or I need advice on putting in fence or grading the dirt road. But I think in a way I'll always be an outsider. Michael and I will never be of this place, as much as we love it. We may never be able to wash the city off of us. There are very real divisions between country people and city people in the U.S. right now, coastal liberals and rural conservatives. And unfortunately, environmental issues the kind of issues I've always loved covering as a journalist, often become symbols of those larger divisions. Which brings us finally to the star of our podcast, the greater sage-grouse, the bird some refer to as the most controversial bird in the West. You don't hear about them much in other parts of the country, but out here, they are a big deal. They're part of the history of the West, and today they become a symbol of all that is still wild and under threat. Man, are they goofy sons of guns, I gotta say. Especially during the mating season, when the males puff up these giant air sacs on their chests and they strut around making the craziest sounds to attract the ladies. It's like nothing I've ever recorded before. They're a funny-looking bird many of us may never see up close. Because they're disappearing. And no one knows what to do about
1: it. It's, it's almost like you're documenting the... The demise of a species in a given spot.
0: As a reporter, I'd heard about the sage-grouse for ages. But I'd kind of avoided covering the issue, to be honest. Mainly because I didn't know how to get people to care. Maybe I didn't know how to get myself to care anymore, either. But living in sagebrush country, it's clear to me how much these birds mean to people out here. So, as I settled into rural life, I got inspired. I started recording people all over the West who have a stake in this bird's future. From people in the industries working in sage country. People in my family have lost their jobs
1: because of what we're going through today. And uh, it's unbearable at, at times.
0: To environmentalists fighting to protect sage country.
1: For those industries bent on destroying Western public lands for their own profits, I'm watching
0: talk to ranchers who want to graze their cattle in sage-grouse country. Do you value them as much as cows? Well, now you're talking to a rancher. <laughs> <laughs> to people whose ancestors were here before any of these other voices arrived in sage country.
1: What happens to them is what will happen to us as people. If they don't have the right kind of environment,
0: they will disappear. This bird gets a lot of different people worked up for a lot of different reasons. But really, the sage-grouse and the way it divides us says a lot about our country right now. So I'm on a mission to learn about this troubled but deeply Western bird. And like the bird, I'm trying to see if I can figure out how to get by in this strange landscape. I hope you'll join me. Next episode, trudging through the snow in search of sage grouse. Oh, what's this one? Is that more coyote here?
1: Oh uh, not a very distinct track, but it looks like it could be it could be a grouse.
0: Wait, did I just beat the scientist yeah, at finding the well, grouse track? That's tracks? not
1: surprising, I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody can sees better than me now, <laughs>
0: This podcast was edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound design by Liza Yeager. Kima Lenahan did our artwork. Thank you to the Willow Grove Foundation, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and the Institutes for Journalism and Natural Resources for their support. Grouse was produced in partnership with BirdNote and was made possible with support from Jim and Beerta Faulkner. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks for listening.